Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Camp Hell, Anna Wakey is a production of iHeartRadio. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the author and participants and do not necessarily represent those of iHeartMedia or its employees. Due to discussion of traumatic, sexual, and violent content, listener discretion is advised. Out of the blue, getting the call that this program was being made, there was a little bit of dread, maybe a little bit of relief. It's not something that ever really goes away for me. It's also not a part of my everyday life as far as my interactions with other people and things that I do. It stays in my thoughts less and less over time. You know, my name is Carl Moore. I was uh, M562. I went to Anawakee in 1976 and uh, left there in uh, 1986. Carl served as a counselor for Anawakee and was the closest of anyone I spoke with to Lewis Petter and his inner circle. By the time of Carl's entry to Anawakee in 1976, Petter had still managed to keep contact with the boys on campus, even though he was not permitted to enter their campsites. Carl remembers his initial introduction to the program while visiting a close friend during one of Anawakee's fellowships, an annual fundraiser for the foundation, which would show off the improvement of its patients to their families. At the fellowship, we'd have the entire campus and all the families together in an amphitheater area. We'd go through a program and awards would be given out, testimonials, kids would do skits. Yeah, everybody put on a good show. 
And then after the main ceremony, each group would go off to its own area and have lunch. It was pretty impressive. And uh, for me, I just saw these people and I said, that's what I want. I want to I want to be confident and strong and sure what I'm doing like all these people look like they were. I knew someone who was there that I thought I'd never see again, and I thought they were just not going to make it. Then I went out there and saw them uh, at one of the fellowships, and I couldn't believe, you know, it, it's like uh, they changed so much, and it seemed so positive, and my life was in disarray. I mean, I was depressed, anxious, but at the end of my rope, I felt like. Then I saw this place where they had all these healthy people, and I thought, well, maybe that's something I should try. Carl remembers his first impression of Lewis Petter following this fellowship. He was not really a, a, a big person but physically, but had a big presence. When he came into a room, you knew he was there. If he looked at you, you knew he was interested in you. He paid attention to people. Petter was God at Anawake. When I came to view it as being his, there was really no distinguishing, in my mind, him from the program. Carl says this first introduction to Anawake came at one of the darkest times in his life, a time when he was desperate for some guidance and direction. I had gotten a girl pregnant, and we had uh, decided to get an abortion. I had, uh, had a lot of self-hatred, I guess. Carl decided that Anawake might be the answer to his problems. He set up an entry interview with Lewis Petter. It is here that he would meet him for the first time. I went for an interview, went into his office, and I told him about that, and uh, I was pretty confused. He had a pitch that he would give to people you know, about letting go of your feelings and ideas and he actually kind of helped me to let go of some of that anger and hurt that I was feeling. Then he came over and uh, had me close my eyes and hold my hand up. I didn't know what it was about. And then he came over and he put his hand on my face and uh, put his thumb against my lips. And I opened my mouth and uh, he put his thumb in my mouth. I let him do it. Even now, you say, how could I let him do that? I was like, this guy is God. He's helped all these people. He's done these amazing things. And he must think I'm pretty special. From going to want to kill yourself to being uh, one of God's chosen was a big step. I think at that point he said, well, you can come back and go in the program. We'll see how it goes. Over the past several weeks, we have received a number of very serious allegations concerning both the facility out there and a the number of individuals involved with it. It was just a form of their therapy. They were told to do it, and at the time, he was 14 and a half, 15 years old. They didn't know any better. I asked him, why are you letting this happen? Why are you covering up for Louis Petter? He had no answers to that question. The thought of having an institution paid in a hospital 
to be such a despicable place and to do absolutely the contrary of what they should have done. I'm disturbed over the fact that something is still going on at Anawaki. I'm Josh Thane, and this is Camp Hell, Anawaki. By the mid-1970s, Anawaki had established itself as a successful program for troubled youth in Georgia. The center had secured its medical license, which allowed the collection of third-party payments from insurance companies, and was now having patients referred there from the court system, as well as other learning centers. Louis Petter, supposedly restricted from making contact with any patients, was still keeping his office on campus grounds. Any oversight at the time had slipped through the cracks of state government, and the enrollment of patients at Anawaki was growing exponentially. Carl Moore was one of these patients. He was admitted in 1977 after seeing the result of his brother's reform there. Carl's family had a particular connection to Anawaki. His mother was involved in a number of schools in Atlanta that would often refer children to the program in Douglasville. Anawaki's reputation had put the program at the top of the list for educators to send children who were beyond the scope of their help. Here's Chris McKnight, a former patient who was referred to Anawaki from the new school, a program headed by Carl's mother, Tweety Moore. My father pulled me out of the school I was going to, entered me into Tweety Moore School, the new school. I was there for a couple months, and at the new school... I met a couple people that I was at Anawaki with that were at her school post Anawaki. So as it turns out, Tweety Moore recommended Anawaki to not just me, but to a lot of other kids. My feelings with Tweety is I don't think she knew about the abuse at Anawaki. I've known Tweety since I was a little kid. I mean, she's, she's passed now, rest her soul. A number of former patients I've interviewed said they were referred to Anawaki from other schools in similar ways. Word had spread throughout learning centers in Georgia and neighboring states that Anawaki was a solution for troubled kids who didn't have a place elsewhere. Now that Anawaki was an officially licensed medical hospital, it was also receiving patients who were wards of the state of Georgia and other neighboring states like Alabama. This all amounted to a large increase in the number of patients enrolling and Anawaki was running out of room. It just seemed that things grew very rapidly while I was there. I'm Stephen McKinney, and I was a patient at Anawaki from July of 1976 through August of 1980. My number was M. 523. Anawaki had been established for 16 years, but by 1980, the numbers were up above 1,600. So the population, at least by laundry number, increased threefold in the time that I was there. Apparently, the Douglasville campus was not big enough for the amount of people that were coming in. Anawaki would soon need to expand their program outside of Douglasville. 
This would take form in what would later be known as the South Campus in Carabelle, Florida, a small fishing town near Tallahassee on the Gulf of Mexico. Anawaki had taken biking and canoeing trips to this town, dating back to some of its earliest years. A 1971 article from the Tallahassee Democrat pictures a group of boys and two older men riding bikes single file down the highway. The caption states, Douglasville, Georgia Utes and their leader on their annual bike excursion to Florida, on their way to Daytona Beach via St. Augustine from Carabelle. Stevens says he was one of the first groups sent there to build what would become the South Campus. They looked among the people that they had in Douglasville that were in vocational groups and chose a certain number of young men that were physically strong and able to go down and produce work without a lot of guidance. We were told, y'all are going down here to build a campus. And for the most part, that's what we did. I was part of the first vocational group that went down there. All we did was work for six days a week and went to church on Sunday and tried to go swimming or something like that on Sunday afternoons. It was hot. It was uh, a lot of bugs, a lot of mosquitoes. It was completely undeveloped. And when we first went down, all there was was that power pole, a well with water, Doc Petter's camper. Anawaki's second campus in Carabelle consisted of two locations, approximately five miles apart, often referred to as the Bayside and the Landside. The Bayside housed a former motel, taken over and renovated by Anawaki patients. Five miles inward was Landside, once part of World War II training camp Gordon Johnston. All that was left was four cement blocks from a former military radar station and untouched Gulf wilderness. This is where Stephen and his first group would begin building the second campus for work groups in Florida. We went down there and began building a lodge, a place for us to eat and meet. We slept on the old radar installation slab and also worked building the first campsite down there, which was called Chimihi. Landside was a few miles away from Bayside. It was not on the coast. It was four or five miles inland. There was not any mixing of the academic groups and the vocational groups. We only came to Bayside to eat our meals. When I finished my part of Carabelle, there were two groups at Bayside and three groups at Landside. So at that point, it was rapidly approaching the size of the Douglasville campus. Stevens says the chosen location of Carabelle 
tied into the educational aspect of Anawake. Prior to the building of the second campus, Anawake could only offer a GED or prepare people for a GED. They were not an accredited school. So they entered into some agreement with Carabell Public Schools and they had three academic groups in Carabell where the members of those groups went to public school during the day and then came back to what we called Bayside or the old hotel at night. This practice of utilizing the Florida public school system did not go unnoticed by the local government in Carabell. In a newspaper article from 1974, the new superintendent of Franklin County mentions asking the Anawake Foundation to pay tuition for its students attending Florida public schools. In another article dated from 1977, Anawake is described as a, quote, college prep school where students could earn college credit by attending the Florida public schools. Eventually, Anawake would be required to pay a tuition fee of $50 a student, but plans were already underway to build their own school. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with the Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't 
feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Uh, thank God for the limits. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Following the 1970 hearing, some restrictions had been put into place regarding Lewis Petter's interaction with the boys at Inawaki. The original stipulation that Petter had no contact with any of the boys had since been diluted to him not setting foot in the sleeping quarters. By many accounts, this still meant Petter would often see the boys, even still having visitors in his house and maintaining his inner circle. Carl Moore, who we first heard at the top of the episode, would be next in line in a string of young men which Petter would manipulate and abuse. Carl says, this first began in Carabelle. Everything about the way I went through the program was different. I mean, looking back, to me, it was clear that I was selected to be something special. I was assigned to a group in Carabelle, Florida, which was the first group down there. Most of what I remember about that was, was pretty positive. We had a couple of group leaders that were, I think they were really good guys. They were the kind of people that's like, geez, I want to grow up and be like that guy. I ended up in Carabelle, and, and I think some of the guys down there thought it was funny. You know, I hadn't been through the e and At some point, I ended up driving back and forth, bringing supplies down from Douglasville. Kind of immediately set me apart from everyone else who couldn't go anywhere. They would say, yeah, Carl doesn't have his knife privileges, but he can drive the trucks back and forth, <laughs> you know. There were already people there that he had relationships with. He had a trailer on the South Campus. It was quite a privilege to get invited to go to the trailer. He had another guy who was who was living at his house then, who he'd brought down there with him, a former patient. A couple other guys who were, I don't know if they were patients or not at the time, but they all were, it had been. Yeah, so that was a kind of a special thing to get invited to come to dinner in there. Petter was a good cook, by the way. <laughs> that was where I had really my, my first sexual experience with him. He was big on uh, trust and loyalty. The standard speech was something like, I'm going to be your old elephant, he would say. I'm going to teach you the way. And you can only have one old elephant course everybody confided in him and he expected that and it was clear that you know he would expect that I think he probably even addressed it directly and saying you know something like you can tell me everything or anything but you can't do that with everybody and we did Carl says that this type of abuse was something that was felt out that not all of the boys were subjected to but only the ones that were susceptible to it. So here's the sleight of hand that kind of happens with that. You're gonna be open with me. You're gonna trust me, absolutely. 
And you're going to do away with all the taboos and all this crap that you've been taught that makes you feel so bad. And then I put my hands on you and, and say, how does that feel? You say, well, you don't say it feels weird. <laughs> I mean, some, some guys would punch him out. He would know who those guys were. It's just like what we learn on the Serengeti in Africa. When the tigers or the lions are approaching a herd of animals, they look for the weak ones that are at the edge of the herd and they try to pick them off. My name is Chris Newland, and I am the executive director at the National Children's Advocacy Center. We were actually the first child advocacy center in the world. At Children's Advocacy Centers, what we do is coordinate the multidisciplinary response to child abuse in our communities. And this model includes partnerships and collaborations with law enforcement, child protective services, medical providers, mental health professionals, prosecutors, victim advocates. So all of us working in a coordinated manner. What's really insidious in this is the fact that in child sexual abuse, in many situations, the child ends up being sexually abused by someone who they consider their friend, someone who they like. Oftentimes, the term grooming is used to describe the actions that happen leading up to sexual abuse with children by their abuser. Chris says, that this is an inaccurate term to use. Why do we use a word, grooming, to describe what an individual may do to sexually abuse a child? Why do we use a word that is, in every other context, pro-social? What they're doing is manipulating. They're taking advantage of someone whom they can, they can deceive for their own personal advantage and gain without any concern for that individual. There's multiple levels of manipulation that occur. First, an individual will manipulate the broader environment by having a good reputation and, you know, being well-respected in their community. Like, oh, Chris could never do something like that. I've known Chris for 26 years, and I've only known him to be X. Those are about creating this environment where I'm manipulating everybody to think I'm a really good guy to hide the things that maybe I'm doing secretly. Another level of manipulation that happens is the manipulation of caregivers or trusted others. So let's say an individual wants to have sexual contact with a child. Their first step really is to win over the parents or the caregivers of that child because they, the, until they can have that individual access with the child, they're not going to have the opportunity to sexually abuse them. It was part of the show, you know. They had a program that did change lives. Being in the inside, I was kind of isolated. Really, anybody that was close to Petter was. It's like two different worlds, you know. There was the Anawakey outside and the, the Petter inside. He would definitely pick and choose whoever he was going to be close to or spend time with. I think that uh, any group leader that had come through the program was certainly going to be on that list of people that would likely have had a relationship with Petter. It's not an accusation, it's just, just the way it is. The last is the child, and it's not just a random approach where I'm just going to try to hit on every child necessarily. That's not the case. Individuals may have particular interests in who they're interested in or who they may have a desire to be in contact with. They may also will almost always look at, is this a child who I think I can manipulate or not? 
If you have a child who always tells on everybody for every transgression, that's not who you're going after, right? Because that, that individual is going to you know, tell. Shortly after Carl's stay at the Carabell campus, he was promoted to group counselor and put on Anawaki's payroll, which brought him even closer to Petter and his home. So I left the, the group in Florida after pretty much after the 90 days and I got my crest. We were starting down that road and, uh, you know, sometime after that I went to work with the group and it just kind of evolved into a group leader. It wasn't like there was any kind of a formal process to it. I was just put with a group. It's like, try this out. And at some point I started getting a check for it, paycheck. I was just following the program, really. I wasn't the first one to go through this. I needed a place to go when I was off. Petter had a couple of beds in the basement of his house, and there was another guy living there who had been through the program. And So then we were part of the family. The offender in this scenario is making the kids like them, where they're an important part of their life because it makes it harder for you to tell on someone you really like. It's easy for any of us to tell on someone we hate when they've done something wrong, right? Like, oh, hey, this person, I hate them, they did this. But when it's someone we like, we're less likely to. The manipulation of you get to do something that other people don't get to do. You get to have access to something that other people don't get to have access to makes it where they, you know, this confusing notion of, okay, but I'm special now that some of this stuff feels weird, but I get all these extra privileges or opportunities that other people don't get. I'm special, and especially for someone who may be at a wilderness camp who hasn't maybe oftentimes felt special in their life or been important to someone else. That can be very powerful for them, not in a sexual way, but just to feel respected, to feel wanted, to feel a part of something. I don't think you could be in Petter's inner circle without a great deal of denial. I mean, I was living with his family, and I would say, you know, it's clear to me that at some level they knew the drill. I think that like a lot of people in my position, they were essentially making sacrifices for the greater good kind of thing, you know? That Anawaki was so important and so good, you know, we had to keep it going. It's hard to describe what happens in something like that. You don't think about it, you think about other things. Once you kind of compartmentalize that one little objectionable thing, then you try to do things to make your life worthwhile. I think everybody who was near Petter did that in some way or another. Chris says that not always, but sometimes, this type of abuse can continue downward from the abused to others. Now, in the situation with Anna Wakey, these behaviors were nurtured by people in positions of influence. Uh, And we see this from time to time. Uh, Individuals who were abused become involved in that and they are developing some level of enjoyment and they are they're encouraged to engage in this behavior with other individuals. The other thing it does is it empowers the offender. Like if let's say so I I'm sexually abusing this child and now I'm encouraging this child to engage in sexual contact. I can then go to that child and say if you ever talk about what happened, they're going to find out about what you've done. You'll be in trouble too. 
now I've made my victim even more vulnerable to me and more able to be manipulated because you have these other people that are kind of this Ponzi scheme of sexual abuse. People would confide in him and uh, he kind of kept an inventory of people. He would have something to say about everybody. And he kind of manipulated people with that information in a really kind of clever, discreet way. Sometimes he would have confrontations with people and they would they would not come out ahead on it. And I think that's why I think people were afraid to confront him for that reason. I think he was one of these people who had the ability to turn people's own situations against them pretty easily. He had told me once that he he had been in the Scouts, the Boy Scouts, and uh, the Scoutmaster had uh, taught them that male relationship with the older man was an important or healthy thing. The unusual thing was that Petter saw it as this guy was right and this idea of these necessary and healthy sexual relationships with men. And I mean, clearly, uh, Petter saw things that way. Children can be manipulated and manipulating them. It's also part of the offender's mentality. Like if other people are doing this, it's more socially acceptable. In our inner circle, it's acceptable for us to do that. I serve as a role model for them so they can engage other kids in this activity. It almost is going to make it harder to believe. But in the group that I'm hanging out with, the people who I'm associating with, this is more commonplace and it becomes a norm. I think I rationalized it as long as I could that I was doing the right thing. At some point, I couldn't accept that myself. But I really had nowhere to go about it. It was almost like I had stopped growing when I got there in a lot of ways. There was always the upside of it, but the downside of it was that, you know, I couldn't keep living like that. I didn't know how to get out. I think for probably the last two years, it's almost a blur. I didn't, I wasn't functioning in really any capacity. I just was depressed. I was suicidal. It's probably uh, by the narrowest of margins that I didn't just kill myself. I, I came really close. Yeah, I just I had nowhere to go with it. The more sincere you are about wanting to get help, the more trusting you are, the more vulnerable you become. Professional therapists are trained about this stuff. It's, a, it's not an easy thing, and I've learned quite a bit about it. There are situations where anybody can lose their objectivity. There's training and integrity and some mechanisms for therapists to deal with that. There's not many mechanisms for patients to deal with it, and that's unfortunate. Petter wasn't, uh, if he was trained in that, he completely did the opposite. He took the vulnerability and, uh, and exploited it on a really huge scale. But it's a cruel thing, you know, the more innocent you are, the worse you are subject to getting hurt that way. The more trusting you are, the more you try to do the right thing, the worse you get hurt. And that's just, that's the heartbreak of it.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true, and I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things, and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. While Lewis Petter continued his methods of abuse and manipulation, the construction of Anawake's Carabell campus was escalating. This work, building on untouched Gulf wilderness, proved even harder on the patients than what was being done in Douglasville. Here's former patient Chris McKnight. Douglasville was very hilly and a really big campus, right? Lots of trees. So there could be a group 100 feet over there doing something, and you couldn't even see them. Carabao wasn't like that. You could see clear across campus for half a mile, barely obstructed. It was kind of like, laid out sort of a circle of buildings. Then there was an old quad building 
that was the foundations for a huge tower when it was an army base and they built buildings on the four foundations that held the tower. There were small buildings, but most of the buildings were kind of like in an outer part of the cleared campus. So if you're working on campus in Carabelle, somebody could see if you're just sitting, not working <laughs> from clear across the campus or something. So it seemed like it was a lot more, I felt like we were always watched more in Carabelle. At that time, they sent the toughest of the students to Florida. This is Stephen, a former patient of Anawakee. He was also a part of one of the first work groups in Carabelle. They formulated a group to start an entire new group in Carabelle. So while I'm in the ENO and while they're formulating this group, there's this intimidation factor that, you know, you're you're being hauled off to the to the roughest of the rough and and these guys are gonna straighten you out for sure. South Campus was smaller than Central. And then about a year after being there, uh, we built the big athletic building, which was full of school rooms and the weight room and the training room and right next to the football field. All the students built that. The very first campsite I went to was an island surrounded by a lake <laughs> infested by alligators <laughs> and rattlesnakes and, and whatnot. But we built a barge uh, to pull ourselves across over to the island and we lived in teepees over there. Well, I got bit by a rattlesnake, but <laughs> I had my boots on, so I was all right. We did have one guy that beat an alligator to death with a baseball bat. Yeah, the alligators were kind of a problem. Chris McKnight attended Carabelle after the new campus had been built. He says the work would continue almost pointlessly if there was nothing to build. It seemed as though they ran out of stuff to do. At Carabelle, they purchased 40 acres and we just cleared brush. This went on for like nearly two years of just clearing brush for no ends. Just like go anywhere, find a place and just start clearing brush. You never haul it away. There was never concerted effort to clear from this section to that section. And it got to the point they finally let us torch it. And then after that, we never had to go to the North 40 again. It was just completely useless worker project. It just seemed that like they went out of the way to find stuff for us to do that just never went to any means. I remember once we dug a ditch from one creek to a swampy area and they said it was drainage, but nothing ever drained and it was just to keep us busy. It was just for no reason. Here's former patient Mark Barber. We worked on the Florida Trail. We did a lot of cutting down of palmettos and we built the baseball field. I actually laid the cinder blocks for the dugouts for the baseball field. There was another guy that got bit by a rattlesnake when we were cutting out some, some trails. I think they airlifted him to Tallahassee and you know he was back within a couple days. This crushing labor would also lead to physical abuse by the hands of group leaders and fellow patients. 
there were injuries. There were injuries all the time. I was injured quite a bit, especially in my first six months, but mostly that was abuse from other kids. I was pushed, punched, beaten up by peers quite a bit, especially that first six, six, nine months. And I just figured that just was the way it was, you know? It was like the hierarchy of just being in a, a really terrible situation. You know, and I mean, I, I didn't know any better or no one told me that there, that there was another way or that this is just the way you're going to expect to be beaten up or abused. You know, I mean, it was kind of Lord of the Flies. You just kind of to figure it out or you were just going to be in a lot of, a lot of pain. In Awakey, there was a lot of fear. Fear from the staff, fear from your peers. I was physically afraid. I mean, there was, I saw other kids be abused by their peer group, and I saw a lot of kids being abused by group leaders. I mean, terribly so. I'd, so I once turned over, literally it seemed over backwards. And I know from that day on had back trouble for the rest of his life. And yeah, was being a smart ass. We were having a fire building contest and everyone had to build their own fire. And said something to the effect that, hey, we build a fire every night for, for group meeting. Why don't we just do it then and time everyone? We're just wasting wood here. And came over and just kind of folded him in half kind of put his left arm on his neck and just pushed him like over his knee and then he kind of just threw him up against a tree and uh, kind of collected himself and um, and said well are we going to do this fire building contest or not and uh, I don't even remember crying so much as just kind of like whimpering in pain and his face just being so red I think just I don't know, it, it just affected me tremendously seeing a kid hurt like that. I mean, I had been beaten up by peer group and I'd been beaten up by my mother, but I'd never seen another kid beaten up by an adult. That just scares the hell out of you. Mark Barber recalls another incident which stuck with him over the years. One still kind of haunts me. There was a guy, Mr. Phillips, who was the head of security. There was a guy in my group, our vocational group, who ran off. We called him splitters, but he was a runner. He, he took off in the middle of the night. He was gone. They caught him. And I remember going to the lodge to eat the next morning. And they had him behind the lodge and you could see it. They were taking him back there and his arm was hanging. For some reason, his arm didn't look right. And I told the other person we were walking in line. I said, did you see, you know, such and such his arm? He goes, yeah, it was broken. And I said, that's why it looked the way it did. And he goes, yeah, he goes, because you could tell how Mr. Phillips was holding it. A couple of days later, it's in a cast and it's in a sling and the guy's kind of drugged up. Uh, I don't know if it was pain meds. I don't know what it was. It's pretty traumatic, you know, to see an arm going the wrong way. 
With all the work being done in Carabelle, the reasons for the build-out were not always clear. One project that patients would later work on was the build-out of a new hotel and marina in the heart of Carabelle. This hotel and marina was not a resource for Anawaki, but destined for public use. Scott Hull is a former Anawaki patient. He worked on helping build the marina in Carabelle. And the kind of manual labor that we would do would either be working on the grounds of the facility itself, but then there were also public things that we did, like the marina. When we were building this marina, we actually were, you know, laying the, the posts to build the boat slip, something that's uh, like a telephone pole, and it's coated with a chemical called creosote. But we would carry those big poles. It would take two of us, you know, it's probably a eight foot long, like a telephone pole, not quite as thick, though. And, you know, we would have chemical burns all over our neck and shoulders from carrying that creosote over and putting them into the, into the water. We'd take a big hose and get it down, down, down until it was level and that kind of thing. But it was a very, very large marina where we were actually, you know, sinking the creosote post for the boat slips and all that kind of thing, doing, you know, 15-year-old kids doing this really hard manual labor, building this marina that I don't know who got the money from, but it certainly wasn't us. I mean, our parents were paying for the privilege for us to uh, build this marina for these other people. Chris McKnight remembers working on the renovations of the adjoining restaurant attached to the marina. We completely like leveled the whole marina, rebuilt some of the buildings, re-landscaped everything. They had bought some boats that we never really got to use, some sailboats. And they also bought the restaurant that was there in the marina, which we gutted, and they never really did much with it. I don't know who the marina was owned by beforehand. I think they bought the marina in, I want to say, 1980, and it sat dormant. And uh, they finished out the lease with the restaurant, and then they closed the restaurant down. And I don't know what their intentions were. So I remember one of the first work projects was scraping off the old tile in the downstairs part of the restaurant. And, uh, and like on the other side of the room, they'd already ripped out most of the petition walls and stuff. And it was just kind of like one big cavernous room. And there was guys in the other end ripping out insulation and, you, and it was hot. You know, it was only end of May, but it was still Florida. It's hot, humid. And you could just see particles kind of floating around. There's like one door open and we're on one end just scraping this tile from probably like the 50s or 40s. Mark Barber remembers one particular incident while working on the marina. We were at the marina and we were bolting together a whole bunch of culvert pipe and that culvert pipe was covered with creosote to keep it from rusting, you know, from the salt water. And one of the guys had gotten creosote burnt really bad. Uh, it was like a third degree sunburn on his arms and between his legs to where we were straddling and bolting it together. I was helping him. I got burnt a little bit, but not bad enough to even, even really mention. But he got tore up pretty bad. Mark Sublett was one patient who suffered these types of burns. We were building the athletic building for Carabelle, and we were pouring the foundations for it. The foundations were getting off. We were supposed to pour down to a graded stake, a grade stake. A couple of us jumped in the asphalt, or the concrete, I'm sorry, and started having you have to rake it back and get it to the right level. That stuff burns your skin real bad, and I guess I didn't know it or didn't feel it, but it burned about 70% of the skin off my legs. 
So I was laid up. They took me out of my group. I could not go anywhere. My skin was gone. Had to go through a bunch of painful stuff as you get third-degree chemical burns. So I could not work, so I'd hang in the clinic and uh, all this stuff. And that was kind of a respite because you'd get some TV and some radio in the clinic. So you'd kind of hang out, but it's still kind of shitty because, of course, sitting there with burned legs and very painful. As I'm sitting in the clinic at the Quadrangle down in Florida, out hobbling around on crutches, and apparently my parents had come down for a parent-teacher meeting. And they go, hey, there's my son out there on crutches. And so they go, oh, we forgot to tell you, your son hurt your legs. Okay. Oh, no. You know what he did? Oh, he's getting full on. We'll take care of everything. Don't worry. He'll be just fine. And of course, too, what they told them was afterward, hey, you're not going to have to pay us. We're going to comp your son to go here. I think part of the reason they did that, because at the time, my father ran DeKalb General Hospital from 69 to 84. So. They kind of knew that. Pretty big hospital, you know, the head administrator, all that stuff. So they sent them, you know, the, you know, you don't owe us any more money. This marina and hotel would come to appreciate and value greatly in the years ahead. Here's journalist Albert Edgen. At that time, Florida was exploding, and Carabell, that area down there, He was smart to go there, very smart, because it's just around the coast from Panama City. Panama City is a place where people from Chicago go. You know, the Midwest, their families in the Midwest, they don't go to Miami. They go to Panama City, for God's sake. And so Carabelle's right around the curve from that. So when you think about it, yeah, you can start a thing in Carabelle where you've got your specialty is treating kids. But man... That's a real estate bonanza. Anawakee's South Campus would come to be known as Anawakee on the Gulf, described in local papers at the time as a private, nonprofit college prep school. With Anawakee looking to expand their program into other states, it would soon set up another corporation to handle all of its real estate endeavors, Anawakee Estates. This corporation would be run and owned by Petter's three daughters, Marsha, Rita, and Dana. With the success of Anawakee on the Gulf and a corporation to hold all of their property, Anawakee would soon look to international travel and even possible expansion into other countries. Next time on Camp Hell, Anawakee. I think that he figured out people were on to him, and so there became a chosen group to accompany them to Mexico. It was supposed to be this big privileged trip. So the Mexico trips, most years they took us to a house of uh, ill repute, house of prostitution, whatever you want to call it. If you didn't know him, you think he had a kind. He would have a kind heart. He'd be willing to help you, and, and you know, in a weird way, he would. He was a church-going guy, or claimed to be. But they kept on telling me that I tried to commit suicide, and that's what had happened to me. And I was trying to tell another of the staff members, and you know, no, that's not what happened to me. This happened to me. Camp 
Camp Hell, Anna Wakey, was created and hosted by Josh Thane, with producer Miranda Hawkins and executive producers Alex Williams and Matt Frederick. The soundtrack was written and performed by Josh Thane and Adrian Barry. Archival footage provided by WSB and CBS News. Find us on Instagram at Camp Hell Pod. That's C-A-M-P-H-E-L-L-P-O-D. Educate yourself about the issue of child abuse and things that you should look for at the Darkness to Light website, d2l.org. That's D, the number two, L dot O-R-G. Camp Hell, Anna Wakey is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. That's right.